My name is Art Cash. I'm an elder here at River Oaks and discipleship pastor. It is my privilege to be in Acts 14 with you this morning. We'll be covering verses 1 through 7. So while you're turning there, I've got a question for you. Raise your hand if you're familiar with the phrase, keep calm and carry on. Okay, so most of us, keep calm and carry on. You're familiar with it. Maybe you've seen the meme. Okay, this meme popular 10 or 12 years ago. It kind of jumped the shark once it was keep calm and call Batman. Okay, but before it was a meme that collapsed under its own popularity, this was a phrase that was created by the British Ministry of Information during World War II. So their job was to boost the morale of the British people as German bombs and V-2 rockets hit London. This ministry of information, they created millions of colorful posters, bold font, eye-catching phrases. They put them at bus stops, train stations, put them in shop windows, everywhere uh, that the people, the citizens of London would see it. One of those phrases was keep calm and carry on. It's a simple idea. No matter what's going on, Stay steady, keep doing what you're doing. Generally speaking, there's some common sense to this idea. When circumstances are out of your control, one of the best things you can do is to keep calm and carry on. Specifically speaking, when you are a Christian and you trust in a good and sovereign God, you have the hope of Christ in you. Your whole identity is rooted and grounded in his love We'll keep calm and carry on makes all kinds of sense in that context. In our passage today, we'll see Paul and Barnabas keep calm and carry on even in the face of extreme opposition to the gospel. And that's our main idea. Even when you're opposed, keep calm and carry on boldly speaking the gospel for as long as you can. Let's read here in Acts 14, 1 through 7, and we'll see this idea. Now at Iconium... They entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lycaonia, and to the surrounding country. And there they continued to preach the gospel. Father, we ask that you would help us, as you do every day, to to see your word, to understand it, to believe it, to see where it points to Christ, where Jesus does what we cannot do, and then by faith, through your grace, by your Holy Spirit, that you will continue to empower us to obey. Father, we thank you for this example, and we thank you for the hope that we see here. Father, press the truth of what we're seeing deep into our hearts. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's, let's acknowledge one challenge right up front with this phrase, okay? I mean, how helpful is it when, when everything's chaotic, you're rattled, you're upset, and somebody says to you, just calm down. You just need to calm down. I mean, 
that's not always the most helpful thing, is it? If we're being honest, what we need in that moment, more than a command, is to know how. That's great. I know I need to keep calm and carry on. Tell me how. Well, I've got good news for you. That's exactly what we're going to see in this passage. We're going to work through the passage trying to answer that question. You see it behind me. We can keep calm when we know what to expect. It's one way that's extremely helpful. We can carry on when we know how to boldly speak the gospel. So that's how we'll work through the passage this morning. So where are we? We've got our, our, our handy map that's coming up. We've got Paul and Barnabas. They're in the thick of their first missionary journey, right? They're fulfilling Jesus' words from Acts 1.8, where they are supposed to, to go and tell and reach the ends of the earth with the gospel. Recently, Paul preached in, in Antioch in Pisidia on the Sabbath in the synagogue. Many believed. But the unbelieving Jews, they incited persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them away. We see that in chapter 13, verse 50. So they head southeast to Iconium to do what? The exact same thing. Look, look back at verse 1. Now at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of Jews and Greeks believed. You may have noticed a pattern here that's developing with Paul and Barnabas. They enter a town. They go to a synagogue. They preach the gospel. They get persecuted. We saw this in Salamis, in Antioch, Pisidia, in Iconium today. We'll see the same pattern in Thessalonica, Berea, Athens, Corinth, Ephesus. When they head into synagogues, they're, they're, they're fishing where the fish are or shepherding where the sheep are. Stick with me on that analogy because the sheep hear his voice and they, they respond to it. So they're fishing where the fish are. They're shepherding where the sheep are. But when they hit a town and walk into a synagogue, they're also walking right into the lion's den. Okay, the, the obvious question then is why? Why go in there? Why not just kind of hang out, sort of loiter by the, the, the front door? Maybe pick the, the friendly-looking guy who looks the least like a Pharisee or a scribe. Okay, pick that guy. Maybe after their last bad experience in Basidia, they should just relax, maybe blow off some steam, rethink the marketing strategy. No. Now, Paul and Barnabas, they head right back into the storm. That is grace-empowered, hard-headed obedience. And this pattern, it reveals not only a stubborn strategy, but a, but a calm determination with Paul and Barnabas. So how do they keep calm? Because they know what to expect. Think about it this way. How, how helpful is it when you're going into a new or, or scary situation to, to know what to expect? Any kids in here are going to summer camp this, this summer? Okay, so like two or three of you, that's great. All right, maybe we'll skip to a different illustration, that's fine. But <laughs> even if you're going, you're going to summer camp, how helpful is it to get on YouTube and be like, oh, that, that could be my counselor. That could be the, what, some of the things that we're going to do at summer camp. Or you're going to a, a, a new school, and you, you, you tour the new school, you meet some of the teachers, you locate the lunchroom, you find the bathrooms, because it's good to plan ahead. Okay? You know what to expect. Some of you know that I don't love flying. All right? it's, not, it's not my favorite. So, so it's extremely helpful to me to know what the noises mean when the flaps move. Okay? That, that's helpful to me. I like to know when the landing gear drops. 
good. I, I know what that noise means. I know what to expect when the engines cut. Let's not say cut. When they, when they slow down. That's, that sounds better. Okay? It's good to know what to expect. I like to be able to see the flight attendant's faces. If they're calm, I'm calm. So when we think about what's happening with Paul and Barnabas in Iconium, they're at this point where they know exactly what to expect. They show up in town. They head to the synagogue. They talk about Jesus. They face opposition. They can expect opposition. The opposition has a familiar ring to it, but I want you to see in our passage how it escalates. See, the the unbelieving Jewish leadership, they stir up the Gentiles. We've seen that before. But they poison their minds against Paul and Barnabas in verse 2. This leads to the entire city being divided in verse 4. And then this divided city then further escalates by threatening harm. The word is is abuse and even stoning Paul and Barnabas. The, The opposition is escalating. Paul and Barnabas are showing us what to expect when our lives and our speech reflect Jesus Christ. And knowing what to expect eliminates surprises and helps us to keep calm in the face of opposition, opposition that will be both personal and polarizing. So the unbelieving Jews, they they poison the minds of the Gentiles. So think for a second, how much must they have hated the message of the gospel if the Jews are leveraging the Gentiles who are supposed to be untouchable? Poison here, it means to vex, to harm, to embitter. They embittered the Gentiles against what? You see it there in uh, verse 2. But the unbelievers, Jews, stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. Okay, Paul and Barnabas, the disciples, their followers, Christians. Expect this tactic, right? When the opposition can't defeat the truth, they will attack you instead. We need to expect personal attacks as Christians. Now... Expecting a personal attack, though, it doesn't mean that it won't hurt. If we're honest, the the possibility of personal attack is at the center of the bullseye for what some of us fear the most. Nobody likes being insulted. At some level, we all want to be liked, or we at least want the begrudging respect of the person we're we're disagreeing with. We at least want them to admit, all right, that was an intelligent point. That was a good argument. Okay, so we at, least, at the very least, we want that. But we've got to be prepared going forward. That may not be the case. Not, not just no respect, but actually believing that you're wicked for the positions that you hold. Fear of personal attack, it may even lead some of us to not speak out when we know that we should. Brothers and sisters, the, the Bible has a name for that. It's called fear of man. Fear of man. The only solution... For wrong fear is right fear. And right fear begins with fear of the Lord, Proverbs 9, verse 10. We need to get right fear right, though, because here's what I mean. Right fear of the Lord not only trembles at His holiness, but also rejoices because that same holy God has set His grace and His love upon you. That's holy fear that draws us close to God, not Sending us away. That is a fear 
that as we draw closer to God, we're empowered to not fear man. We are empowered to rejoice at being counted worthy, to personally suffer dishonor for the name of Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, no matter what names you might be called, you are only defined by one name, and that name is Jesus. You're defined by him, not what anyone else says about you because his name is above all names and you belong to him. So not only personal, but polarizing. Personal attacks and then polarizing. We, we can see these, these mixed results when we share Jesus. We can, we can see it now. We can see it in Scripture. This pattern that we see when people hear the word of grace, it divides people. Look, look at verse 4. But the people of the city were divided. And what makes that so stunning is it's coming right after having seen signs and wonders and the word preached. The city's still divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. So the root word for divide is where we get the word schism. Some believe, some oppose. And since we're trying to keep calm, trying to know what to expect... We need to accept that Jesus is the most polarizing person in all of history. Even though we know that, though, I think sometimes the rejection side, the rejection side of, of the responses, it, it surprises us, it, it discourages us. Of course, when we share about Jesus, we're, we're hoping, we're praying for a positive response. Nobody, nobody sets out to share Jesus and is like, watch this this is going to be terrible. They're going to hate it. We don't, we don't set out like that. We're, we're cautiously optimistic. We take a risk. We, we share the gospel. When we're met with opposition, we find ourselves surprised that there's like a strain in the relationship that wasn't there before, grieved when the person rejects what you're saying. In fact, when that happens, sometimes it feels an awful lot like they're not just rejecting Jesus, but rejecting you. So we begin to blame. All right, let me think back through this. Uh, I said something wrong. I wasn't clear. They think I'm judgy. And we go on and on and on, thinking about the ways that we messed up. And that leads to a place where we're reticent to share going forward. What this passage in all of Acts helps us to see And to expect, again, we're talking about what to expect so we can remain calm, is that some will hear the gospel and they will reject it. We see it right here. What we've got to realize is this, an overt and strong rejection of the gospel is actually an indication that you were exceedingly clear. And they totally understood it. They just hate it. Grace is offensive. And the truth of Jesus Christ is polarizing. Jesus' exclusivity is folly to those who are perishing. Jesus himself told his disciples, told us exactly what to expect. Just in one place, John 15, all over the place, but here's one specifically. If the world hates you, keep in mind it hated me first. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. So what do we expect? We expect personal attack. We expect polarized responses. So what do we do? How does knowing 
to expect personal attacks and in, in these type of responses, how does that help us keep calm? Well, I want you to see this with me. I want you to turn over to, to 2 Timothy 3, 11, 15. I, I, I want you to see this with me. I want you to see that Paul takes these exact experiences in Antioch, in Iconium, in Lystra, 2 Timothy 3, 11 through 15, and he applies them to Timothy. And Timothy's his, his son in the faith. Timothy's timid. He has a weak stomach. He's young. He needs encouragement. At least one of those things applies to most of us in this room. He needs encouragement. Paul takes these experiences and he tells Timothy exactly what to expect. All right, starting in verse 11, he's, in verse 10, he's been saying, Hey, Timothy, you followed my teaching, my conduct, my faith, my love, my steadfastness. In 11, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured. Yet from them all, the Lord rescued me. Right here in verse 12, he tells us what to expect. Timothy, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It gets even worse. While evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Keep calm and do what? Verse 14. But as for you, continue in what you've learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you've learned it, And how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. So it may not be in the original Greek. I'm going to work with a paraphrase here. It's my own. Timothy, persecution will come, but keep calm and carry on with the faith that you've been taught. It matters to me that, that this is possibly the last letter that Paul wrote 20 years on into his ministry before his death. He sticks to the message. Nothing has changed for Paul. It's the same message. So a word for for parents here, but specifically for moms and nanas, mothers and and grandmothers. How did did Timothy learn the faith? Anybody? Mother and, and grandmother, right? That's how he learned the faith, from his grandmother Lois and his mother Eunice. So mom, grandma... Your roles are critical. I I can't overstate the importance of the job that you are doing, making disciples in your own families. This disciple-making, we we need a both-and approach that we see in 2 Timothy 3. We see a sober approach to reality in verses 12 and 13. He's telling Timothy what to expect. You're going to be persecuted. Evil people are going to get worse. So a sober approach to reality and the hope of the word in 14 through 16. So if we're teaching a sober approach to reality and the hope of the word, that means we're raising not just lie spotters, but truth tellers. Here's what I mean. While we're rightly discipling children to spot the lies, Are we also giving the appropriate emphasis to soaking them in the truth of the word? I'm not playing cultural awareness against discipleship in the word, but I'm for sure saying to prioritize the truths of the word over the lies of the world in discipling your kids and in renewing your own mind. Soak in what's true. Then you could spot the lie. 
So whether uh, some things that came to mind were rainbows and politics, I don't know why. <laughs> you can ask your kids what they think of first when you say the word rainbow. And this doesn't apply to Esmark family since that's his nickname. Okay. <laughs> do they roll their eyes and complain about Pride Month? Or do they start talking about God's promise to Noah? Our kids, are, are they more likely to hear us complain about who and who's not been to the border? Or are they more likely to hear us talking about God's care for the widow, the orphan, and the oppressed? What are we discipling them in? This admonition, this emphasis, I'm not pulling this out of the air on a hobby horse. It's, it's directly from Paul's hand right here. In 2 Timothy 3, 15 and 16, from childhood, Timothy, you've been acquainted with the sacred writings. They made you wise for salvation through Jesus Christ. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. As parents, as grandparents, we can keep calm as the culture shifts and the lies keep coming, but we can carry on because the word of the Lord endures forever. So when we know what to expect, that the opposition is, is personal and it's polarizing, it helps us to keep calm. But again, where's that, that bold carrying on piece? How do we do that? There's so many themes that, that we could track down in Acts, but one that repeatedly jumps out with the apostles in the early church is boldness. They're praying for it. They want it. They act bold. We, we see at least nine times specifically in Acts, boldness is referenced. And it comes right at, at that point where this, the, the opposition has reached a crescendo. The, the pressure is on. Persecution is happening. And it's right in those times and places. If we're honest with ourselves, we think, man, if I'm in Paul and Barnabas' shoes, I'm, I'm going to be bold. I'm going to fail. We can, we can think that. Well, what are we supposed to do? Let's let Paul and Barnabas show us the way. So there's not only instruction and example for us in this passage. There's hope. Now look again at verse 2 and 3. If you were in 2 Timothy, you've got to flip back to Acts 14. <laughs> so we're in Acts 14. Look again at 2 and, and 3. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So, so they what? They bail out? They give up? No, they, they remain. Not only do they remain, they remain for a long time. So before we, we jump to speaking boldly, Paul and Barnabas, they display their boldness simply by remaining where they are for as long as they can. That's huge for us as believers. One of the boldest actions you can take is to remain exactly where you are in the face of opposition. As the pressure builds on you in the workplace to fold, stay. Stay as long as you can and carry on being a Christian. The culture wants everyone divided by race and identified by sexuality. At the tip of that spear are teachers 
educators, administrators, nurses, doctors, again, stay. Stay where you are and carry on for as long as you can. Just you remaining in your presence where you are, that's bold. Why? Because as as believers, Jesus Christ himself says who you are. Remember, he defines you. He gets to say that you are salt of the earth, that you are light of the world, Matthew 5, 13 and 14. Your remaining presence is bold because you are reflecting the light of Christ where it's dark. Remaining where you are gives people a chance to see your life up close. When our lives demonstrate the fruit of the Spirit, they shine bright. So your life as a Christian, wrote Dietrich Bonhoeffer, should make non-believers question their disbelief in God. That is huge for us. Our lives should make an unbeliever go, man, I want that. Why is that guy so patient? Why is that girl so joyful? Why is she so faithful? Why is she so gentle? I want that. Our lives should make non-believers question what they're doing. It doesn't stop there, though. Verse 3 doesn't stop with just remaining. The implications go further than just how we live. The text says Paul and Barnabas also spoke boldly. What does that look like? Look back at verse 1 and we see two actions. They entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. So we see two things, together and speaking in a believable way. Let's not miss Paul and Barnabas being together in Iconium. Whether it's Paul and Barnabas, Paul and Silas and Timothy, Paul and Luke, Paul and Priscilla and Aquila, Paul and Titus. Paul consistently had partners, wanted partners, wanted companions in his gospel work. Just in this passage, the words they, them, together, apostles, the brothers, shows up nine times. The Holy Spirit set Paul and Barnabas apart for his work, but they do his work together. This solo, lone ranger, just me and Jesus, Christianity, it's not the design for the Christian life, and it's surely not the most effective means of sharing the gospel. I mean, how encouraging is it? New school, new job, getting to know people, and you find a fellow believer. Not only do you no longer feel alone in your convictions, but his or her presence makes you bolder. I mean, think about times at, at, at Ruby's and just walking back to the back of the culinary center where everybody's out training, making burgers and crab cakes and all that stuff. And I'm walking back there and I'm, I'm talking to, to Greenway or, or Dodge, okay, going to the video room. And it could have been a terrible day. And I walk in there and I'm talking to a couple fellow believers, and I'm encouraged in my faith. And what started out as a terrible day through, I don't know, whether it's uh, cajoling, uh, encouragement, you're walking out of that door going, I'm going to go talk to somebody about Jesus. Watch this. And just the encouragement that would happen there amongst friends. That's the power of Christian friendship. I love how C.S. Lewis puts it. 
alone among unsympathetic companions. I hold certain views and standards timidly, half ashamed to avow them and half doubtful if they can after all be right. But put me back among my friends in half an hour, in ten minutes, these same views and standards become once more indisputable. The opinion of this little circle while I'm in it outweighs that of a thousand outsiders. That is the power of Christian friendship. So God helps us carry on boldly by giving us Christian friends. They strengthen weak knees. They steady, shaking hands You you can do this alone, but what a kindness from God when you can be bold together. So they speak in a believable way. Not only are they together, they're speaking in a believable way. We're asking the question, how do we carry on speaking boldly? That answer is in verse 1. They spoke in such a way to be believed. Man, I would like to, to have heard that. Belief means that those who heard Paul and Barnabas' words, they were placing their faith, they were relying, they were trusting, they were committing to what was being shared. So what does it mean that Barnabas and Paul spoke in such a way that it led a great number to believe? Well, if they said anything like Paul's sermon in chapter 13, their words were passionate. Their demeanor was earnest, their voices sincere, they were credible and persuasive. And you may be thinking, good for them, that's not me. (laughs) We've discussed this idea before when it relates to discipleship. If you were at Camp Arrowwood training, we discussed it on Tuesday. Okay, But the same principle is true in evangelism. Everybody in this room has something about which you are passionate, each one of you. Something that you talk about, and it's easy to listen to you because whatever it is, you love it, and it's obvious, and your enthusiasm is contagious. Could be board games, okay? Could be Star Wars prequels, okay? Could be hiking, could be working out. It's something. The point is that there's something that you're so passionate about that all you need is somebody to take a breath in a conversation, and, and you're in with what it is that you love, and you're going to talk about it. It just comes out of you. So if you are a believer, you are indwelt with the Holy Spirit. That same passion, knowledge, and persuasion is how it could be with Jesus Christ. Stick with me. Speaking in a credible and believable way is not just how it could be for every Christian. It's absolutely how it will be when we are relying upon the grace of the Lord. When we rely on him, this idea, it's, it's clearly captured in verse 3, specifically the, the NASB. When it says they spent a long time there speaking boldly, not, not for the Lord. We see that in ESB. In ASB it says, but with reliance upon the Lord. We know this because we, we see in the middle of verse 3, who bears witness? The Lord. To what? His word of grace. The message is a word of grace. Jesus is the one who grants power for signs and wonders. It's his strength, it's his grace that bears witness to what's been said. So there's two ways I want us to see this grace. It's saving and it's empowering. We know Paul's story from earlier in Acts. His story is our story. Jesus Christ confronts 
an enemy, converts him, and makes him his friend. At some point, each one of us was on the wrong side of the gospel divide. Our minds were poisoned. We rejected the truth, dead in our sin, and we deserve the wrath of a holy God for our rebellion against him. All while life may have looked awesome on the outside, life might have even felt full and complete on the inside. Sometimes we can paint total depravity as like somebody's just passed out in the alleyway with a needle in their arm. It doesn't always look that way. Total depravity sometimes can look like a satisfying life with a nice house, a great job, fulfilling marriage, well-rounded kids, surrounded by the death stench of self-reliance. That's what depravity can look like. Only by the word of grace could a person be awakened from the American dream to realize his desperate need for Jesus Christ as Savior. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Ephesians 2 verse 5. So we carry on boldly speaking the gospel because we want people to know what that's like. We want them to know, I went from death to life. I went from blindness to sight. There was a time where I was in the kingdom of darkness, and now I'm in the kingdom of the sun. When you've been rescued, and you want lost people to follow your rescuer. So we speak. We speak to all who will listen of God's saving grace. But it's not on you. We do so by God's empowering grace. And we know that Paul relied upon the grace of the Lord because there's really only two things he boasted about, his weaknesses and the power of God. And interestingly, it's, it's from Iconium that we have the earliest dated physical description of Paul. He's described as extremely short, with bow legs, being in a good state of body, with eyebrows that met in the middle, a longish hooked nose, and a face full of friendliness and grace. So it's safe to say that even though he had a friendly face, Paul was not much to look at. Okay? And Paul himself tells us in 1 Corinthians 2, he wasn't that great with words either. Okay? He, he didn't come to them with lofty speech, with plausible words of wisdom. He came to them in weakness and fear. If that described his typical preaching, then how in the world was he passionate, sincere, and persuasive? How did he speak in a way to be believed? The answer is, by the grace of God, he preached Jesus Christ and him crucified. He kept the message simple. He kept it on point. It's so helpful. We're learning multiple ideas here. One, that, that courage and specifically boldness is not overcoming fear but speaking even while you are afraid. Speak even while you are trembling. You can be both afraid and believable. Even if you're bow-legging and you don't got no good words, okay? We see that with Paul. You can speak. And two, you can carry on boldly speaking the gospel in your weakness because you're relying on the grace of the Lord you can carry on this way because you're united as a believer to grace incarnate, Jesus Christ. John 1.16 tells us from Jesus' fullness, from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. 
do you know what that means? That as a believer united to him by the Spirit, it's, it's limitless. This, this grace, we, we see a direct connection, though. I want to just jump around Scripture and make the argument. I want you to see it in context. Look over to Acts 14.26, because we see a great connection to work and grace. All of this missionary journey. Look at how Luke describes it, how he describes their work of boldly speaking the gospel in the face of escalating opposition in 14.26. So they sailed back to Antioch where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. It was the grace of God that empowered all of their work. Brothers and sisters, grace is not passive. It's active. In Titus 2, we get all the splendid details. Grace not only brings salvation, but trains us how to live, gives us hope, redeems us to Jesus, and makes us zealous for good works. Relying upon the grace of the Lord looks like growing in confidence and obedience to these truths. So when that's happening, you can't help but boldly speak about what's been done for you in Christ. There will be passion. There will be sincerity. There will be credibility. And you will be utterly believable as you talk about the Jesus who saved you and empowers you. So we remain. We speak boldly. What else we see in Acts 14? When we carry on boldly proclaiming the gospel, we do it wisely. There's nothing in Scripture that commands us to be a martyr. Rather, we're commanded to be wise, even shrewd in the face of opposition. And we see that in verse 5 and 6. When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lycaonia and to the surrounding country. What do we learn from this? Stay as long as you can, but when it's time to go, go. Stay as long as you can when it's time to go, go. There's nothing casual about the word fled. In verse 6, they learned of a plot to harm them and stone them, so they left, and they did it quickly. So you know it's time to go when the threats are coming from a large number of people or from those in authority who have the power to hurt you. We see that. They're rulers. Verse 5. But Paul and Barnabas, they're not just fleeing for their own safety. They have a plan and a purpose, and they're sticking to it. And if you've been listening, I bet you can guess what it is because there's a pattern to it. We see Paul and Barnabas' Barnabas calm determination in exactly what they do next. They know what to expect, and they carry on with their hard-headed, grace-empowered pattern and purpose in verse 7. And there, they continued to preach the gospel. You have to love it. Okay, a skeptic looking at their actions would say, that's insane. You're doing the same thing over and over. But Paul and Barnabas, they're not expecting different results. They know what to expect. They know to expect opposition. They know they are completely reliant upon the grace of the Lord to carry on, boldly sharing the gospel, wherever they are, wherever they go. Brothers and sisters, that's our call. That's our privilege. We're empowered to do it. We get to share the gospel and make disciples where we are and wherever we go. Even this morning, we saw a thrilling and God-honoring example of the wherever we go. A family obeying the call to go with the bachelors. 
And, and like we see at the end of Acts 14, we will share and celebrate with them. Look, look over at the end of Acts 14, 27 and 28. And when they arrived, it's Paul and Barnabas coming back, they gathered the church together. They declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they remained no little time with the disciples. We will celebrate the victories that we can see with what God is doing, how he's challenging, how he's moving, along with the saints in Iconium, Lystra, and Derby, with the saints here and those who are going to Brazil. We will celebrate the victories we can see. We will celebrate the victories we cannot see, but have utter confidence in because of the eternal hope that we have in Jesus Christ, our Savior and King. Let's pray. Father, we we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that it reproves us, rebukes us, trains us, makes us wise for salvation. Father, I, I pray that, yes, we would be motivated by the example of Paul and Barnabas to go and tell, to stay and tell, and Father, more, more than motivation of example, I pray that we would see clearly that, that your son came to stay and, and tell and live and die and, and be resurrected for our sins so that we might be united to you. Father, I pray that the, the truths from this passage, whether it's the, the saving grace that we need to, to soak in, or the empowering grace that by your spirit you would have your way with us this morning. That we would love you because you first loved us. We would worship you because you are worthy. And we would respond to you because you are good. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.